Onward to the Road Revolution. So, this time period is 1763 through 1775. So, in the 18th century, a large percentage of American colonists are going to be proud to belong to the British Empire. So, you've got your loyalists. Now, they're not just, you know, proud just because, you know, you've heard that song, you know, I'm proud to be an American, blah, blah, blah. They're proud... And they want to continue to be British for a couple of reasons. One of those is, this is what they've always done. This is tradition. The, the monarchy goes back to like the 1200s. So this is, this is something that has went on for hundreds of years. Also, a lot of these people, their family live over in Britain. They come from, you know, British, maybe British nobles or British merchants. And that's how they were able to come over to the Americas. And then the last thing really has to do with them thinking that they're, you know, they're kind of better than the other groups of people that are living there. Because remember, we've got the Dutch, we've got the the Swedes, we've got the Danes. I mean, there's so many other groups, the Native Americans, the French. So, the British American colonists look at themselves as as being part of England, therefore better than these these other groups. Now you had that other side too, which were your uh, your rebels, and it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want to be British per se. It was more. It was more like. A child who had outgrown their parent. They felt like that they they didn't need someone telling them what to do anymore. They were way across the sea in these colonies doing their own thing. Uh, that brings in, you know, that salutary neglect that began around 1713. So between 1713 and 1763, there's going to be this reduced government intervention in most of the colonial affairs. Now, one of the prime ministers, he was a Whig prime minister, and if you remember, they had the Whigs and the Tories. This is Sir Robert Walpole, and that's W-A-L-P-O-L-E. He believed if, if you left the colonies alone in order to run, you know, their own affairs, their own businesses and whatnot, and you gave them very little interference, that this would help with the wealth and it would help with commerce, and it would cause very little, you know, friction. And whatever their wealth was, was England's wealth. Now... Britain would provide peace and protection. They would help with commerce. They would ensure, you know, laws and everything were taken care of. And they would send more immigrants to America in order to increase the number of workers and of customers. Now, Britain was also very focused on their own major wars that were going on, like the English Civil War. So the colonies were were left to raise, equip, and train their own militias for protection against Native Americans. So, England's doing their own thing. The British colonies are doing their own thing. So, they're having to develop this level of self-reliance and their own organization. So, they're having to to develop this self-government as well. So, there's 13 separate colonial governments that are going to come out of this. Now, collectively, they're pretty much going to always undermine the authority of Parliament because, again, they thought that this whole idea of, like, nativism and nationalism instead of we're British. It was more we are 
we're, we're, we're Carolinians, we're um, Georgians. Part of the reason that the, the local government is more important to them as well is because it's more responsive. Because if you think about it, the British Parliament, the British government, they're two months away, you know, in the best of times. So if there's something happening in the local area, you know, in the town or the, the colony, who's going to be better to respond to it? Those who are two months away, and by the time that they respond to it, you know, the thing could have either blown over or have become worse, something that could have been curtailed quickly, but it took too long, or the people that are right there in the midst of it. Now, they're, they're manufacturing. Their manufacturing is going to increase anyway. And this is going to be despite the, the British policies, you know, specifically those navigation laws. And part of this has to do with the lax laws because they're not paying attention to British, British, sorry, the British colonies anymore. So the Americans are able to get around. They're able to circum, you know, circumnavigate the navigation laws. And then what they can't get around, they end up doing, you know, through smuggling, which a lot of times you get a lower price because you're not having to pay those taxes specifically to Britain. Now, as there's more and more of this authority, specifically that Eastern authority, a.k.a. Britain, the colonists, there's going to be more or they're going to be, there's going to be a start to, I should say, a lot of violent protests. One of those is the Paxton Boys Rebellion. Now, this is going to be in 1764. This is a group of Pennsylvania Scots-Irish dissenters that are going to be in the western frontier, and they're going to march against the, the Quakers. They're upset about the Quakers' leniency that has to do with the, um, the Native Americans, specifically the government American Indian policy. Because if you remember, Quakers believed that everyone was equal under God and, you know, that everyone should be treated, you know, properly. So, during this rebellion, there's going to be around 20 who, peaceful, mind you, peaceful Native Americans who were killed. And then, there, this is going to be followed by a march on to Philadelphia. The uh, Paxton boys are going to demand better representation. They want protection against Native Americans in the frontier, and they want the funds for internal improvements. Now, the group is going to disperse after Benjamin Franklin is going to promise that their concerns would be considered by the legislature. Because even then, Thomas, Jeff or Thomas Jefferson, sorry, Benjamin Franklin had a lot of, had a lot of sway. He had a lot of, uh, you know, kind of power with people. Then you had the Regulator Movement, and this is in 1771. So, Eastern farmers in North Carolina are going to be really frustrated with the, the tax policies, um, some of the inadequate representation, specifically of the Western farmers in the Colonial Assembly, and the legislation that's favoring the wealthy planters over in the East. And this fighting in the regulator, uh, regulator movement is going to last for around three years. Now, both of these rebellions were really similar to Bacon's and Leisler's rebellions that were back in the 17th century and to future rebellions, which we'll get into later. Shay's Rebellion, which is going to happen in 1787, and the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794. 
So let's talk about British mercantilism. Now, you've got a positive and a negative impact for the, or grouping of negative impacts and positive impacts. So let's start off with the positive impacts. So up until 1763, these navigation laws, they're not going to adversely impact the colonial economy, you know, yet. Uh, colonials had the same rights as Englishmen and they had opportunities for self-government. And that's because of that salutary neglect. The colonies had British military projection that were free of charge and they greatly profited from manufacturing and trading with Britain. But there's going to be really more negative impacts of mercantilism because the colonial manufacturing is going to be hindered eventually by the British policies. The southern colonies are going to suffer because of the export prices. They're going to drop due to enumeration. Uh, Virginia was especially affected because they had the poor economic conditions that are going to result in a, uh, a civil unrest. Uh, New England is going to resent the favorable British policies toward the southern colonies who, you know, the southern colonies were producing tobacco, sugar, and rice, which were things that were needed over in Britain. Then you have the writs of assistance, and these are search warrants by British custom officers. They would harass the colonial shippers, and the point of the, the writs, they were aimed to reduce the colonial smuggling. So, in other words, an illegal triangular trade. Now, in 1761, James Otis, this is a, a Boston lawyer, he's going to demand that Parliament repeal the acts. And Parliament is going to refuse, but Otis's, Otis's efforts are going to gain press throughout all the colonies. colonies. Now, later, he's going to write these fa the famous words of no taxation without representation. So that starts with him, James Otis. Then in 1763, we get to the end of, you know, pretty close to the end of salutary neglect. This is going to mark a whole new era in relations between Britain and the colonies. We get George Grenville, that's G-R-E-N-V-I-L-L-E. -L -L -E. He's the new prime minister. He really wants to enforce the Navigation Acts. He's kind of a turd. Um, Americans were really angry about the increased authority of, like, the admiralty courts. So... Now they're trying smugglers, they're trying tax evaders, ship owners, and others that are accused of violating any of these commercial restrictions, a.k.a. the Navigation Acts. So there's no trial by jury because the court was located far to the north in Nova Scotia. And in some cases, you would be sent back to Britain, so you wouldn't exactly have a, a jury of peers. You wouldn't have a jury of, you know, your other colonists. You would, like I said, you'd be sent back and sometimes never heard of again. Um, the debt, Britain's debt from the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, this, it was enormous. Half the debt was due to the cost of protecting the colonies. And Britain thought the colonists should pay a third of maintaining a garrison of 10,000 British soldiers in order to protect them against any kind of Native American uprising. Enter King George III. Now, he's going to reign from 1762 to 1820 in England. Uh, he was a young, like, really stubborn leader who surrounded himself with these government officials who were often inexperienced, they were selfish, and they're very narrow-minded. In his first 10 years of his, of his reign, he had five different prime ministers. That's a ridiculous amount of turnover if you're, if you're unaware. Um, 
George is going to seek to exercise increased control over the colonies. Some say he even had like a mental disease. He was very uh, controlling. He was very competitive. Um, kind of out of his mind, honestly. Anyway, so prior to that, there was 50 years of Whig power. This is going to give way to a conservative government that's going to be dominated by the king beginning in 1762, which is when he started. So... Then we have the Proclamation of 1763. Now, this is going to prohibit uh, colonials from moving west of the Appalachians. Now, the purpose of this, the British aim of this, was to settle land disputes with Native Americans fairly to prevent any future uprisings, you know, like Pontiac's Rebellion. A lot of the uh, colonials are going to be infuriated with this because many of the, the veterans had fought in the war. They felt betrayed that, like, they were, you know, kind of being pushed back by the Native Americans. And a lot of your land speculators are going to believe that Americans should have access to these lands. Um, and generally, the colonists, yeah, they pretty much ignored the proclamation, did what they wanted to. 1764 brings us the Currency Act. Britain is going to restrict the colonial printing of paper money. They wanted the colonists to pay back debts and taxes with hard currency, so gold and silver. The trade deficit between England and America is going to end up hurting the colonies. Uh, most of the gold and silver that flowed to England from the colonies since the colonies imported more than they exported. And the lack of gold meant a lack of available hard cash, which means bartering among colonists is going to increase. 1764, we get an updated version of the Molasses Act of 1733. We get the Sugar Acts. And this is the first act ever passed specifically to raise revenue for the crown. This had nothing to do with taking care of uh, the colonies. This had nothing to do with paying back debts. This was strictly to raise money for royalty. This was aimed to regulate the illegal triangular trade by collecting duties that the colonists had not paid for, you know, many, many years. And the reduced taxes on this reduced taxes on molasses, but taxed all molasses, not just the molasses from the French West Indies. So it's reducing it individually, but it's spreading it out. So you're still paying as much, if not more, tax than you were before. Now, obviously, just like every one of them, it's not going to be enforced effectively, and the duties were eventually lowered after the Stamp Act crisis. 1765, we get yet another act, and this is the Quartering Act. So, certain colonies were required to provide food and lodging for British troops. This also had occurred during the French and Indian War, which we talked about earlier. Now, there's going to be three great crises in the colonies that are going to lead to the American Revolution. You have the Stamp Act, the Townsend Act, and the Tea Act. So we'll start off with the Stamp Act. This is 1765, and this is the single most important event leading to the American Revolution. Now, the purpose of the Stamp Act was to raise revenue to support new, new British military forces in the colonies. The provisions for this were anything that had to have an official stamp. So official stamps on paper would serve as proof of payment. And the tax was applied to things like published materials, uh, legal documents, so we're talking... Excuse me, we're talking pamphlets, newspapers, diplomas, a bill of lading, any kind of marriage certificate, even death certificates, mortgages, even something simple as playing cards. Now, both the Sugar and the Stamp Act are going to provide for, try, for trying offenders in admiralty court where juries were not allowed. So, again, you don't get a jury at trial. 
The burden of proof was on the defendant, and the defendant is the person that's being charged, who were basically assumed guilty until proven innocent. So the complete opposite of what our judicial system is supposed to be today. Now, Grimfield, the, uh, the prime minister we talked about earlier, he's going to see the Stamp Act as reasonable and just, as he probably would because he's not having to pay it. Uh, it only required colonists to pay their, what he considered to be their fair share for colonial defense. And a Stamp Act in Britain had been much heavier in, an, in, in, in effect for around 50 years, so he looks at this as this is what we're doing, so you should too. Now, we're going to get the Virginia Resolves. This is going to be led by Patrick Henry. So, Virginia leaders believe that the Stamp Act is going to attack colonials' rights as Englishmen. Five of Henry's seven res uh, resolutions were adopted by the House of Burgesses, including non-importation. Now, he's going to claim that Virginia could only be taxed by Virginians, that whole no taxation without representation. The assemblies of eight, of eight other colonies are going to pass resolutions that are going to be similar to Virginia. So, everyone's like, only people that can tax us are us, not this little island that's way across the sea. Now, the colonists' views are going to distinguish between legislation and taxation. So, le legislation, so your internal taxes, was the right of Parliament to regulate its empire. So, custom duties and tariffs. And then you have taxation itself, which were internal taxes. <clears throat> now, this was the, supposed to be the exclusive right of local representative government. So, British taxation was seen as robbery and that it attacked the sacred rights of property. Because, remember... Um, Thomas Paine said, life, liberty, and property. Now, Grenville's response is the colonies had virtual representation in Parliament. So, of course, he's going to say that, even though he doesn't know what virtual is at the time. It's a whole different meaning to virtual, right? <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. He's going to state that all British subjects were represented, even those who did not vote for members in Parliament because of this virtual representation. The colonists are going to dismiss this idea of virtual representation and continue to proclaim no taxation without representation. They didn't really want direct representation or act, actual representation because this would mean increased taxes, as in Britain, and increased responsibilities to the crown. Colonial represent, uh, representatives would be heavily outnumbered in the parliament, so it's not like they'd actually do anything anyway. Then we got the Stamp Act Congress. This is 1765 as well. This is going to bring together 27 delegates from nine colonies. Massachusetts is going to invite colonies who adopted the Virginia Resolves to this meeting. It's going to draw up a statement of their rights and grievances and demand that the king and parliament rescind the Stamp Act. This was largely ignored in England and of little consequence in the colonies initially. But the significance of it is it brought together representatives from various colonies and it set a precedent for future resistance to British rule. So it helped break down these, these sectional suspicions that were, that were within each of these colonies. Because remember, everyone had their own laws. They had their own government. It's going to enact a non-importation agreement against British goods as well. Because Britain's economy suffered from this non-importation, but it was not a decisive in reversing Parliament's decision. So it's like, this happened to us, but we're not really going to do anything about it. <clears throat> 
From here, we get the Sons of Liberty. Now, they're going to be led by Samuel Adams. They're going to violently enforce this non-importation agreement against violators. So you have tarring and feathering, and this is one of their more brutal tax tactics. Because if you think about it, tarring and feathering sounds kind of funny. It's like, oh, this dude's got tar and he's got feathers all of them. In order for tar to be like that liquid, it has to be boiled. Tar is not a naturally slimy liquid. Tar is actually pretty thick normally. So when they pour it on somebody, it was usually bubbling hot. And then the feathers were just, it was, the feathers was, mu was more than anything just a, like, to kind of poke fun or to humiliate somebody further. Now, the houses of pro-British officials, a lot of times they were vandalized, they were burglarized, and the warehouse where stamps were stored are going to be destroyed. All the Stamp Act agents were forced to resign because no one risked selling stamps. Now, keep in mind, the people that they were doing this to, these, this was just their job. They were just workers. They weren't the people who wanted to do this. This was just their job. This is like you getting upset at Target and taking it out on the customer service guy. But I digress. All right. The Stamp Act was repealed in 1766. Lord Rockingham saw the Stamp Act as a possible cause of some civil crisis and encouraged British merchants to write Parliament to rescind the tax. Rockingham is who replaced Grenville. Uh, Parliament is going to pass the Declaratory Act at the same time as the repeal of the Stamp Act. Now, its purpose was to partly kind of save face with the people. It claimed Parliament had the right to tax the colonies in the future. So it's like but they backed off, but they're like, but we might do it anyway. Just later. Uh, the Sugar Stamp Act was also going to be lowered significantly, significantly, and the Stamp Act Rebellion is going to prove uh, Parliament could be persuaded to yield to American boycotts and types of mob action. 1767, we get the Townshend Act, and that's T-O-W-N-S-H-E-N-D. It's named for Charles Townshend. He took control of Parliament and sought to punish the colonies for the Stamp Act uprising. Now, the provisions of this act is it was a small import duty, and it was placed on glass, white lead, paper, paint, silk, and tea. So basically, it was an indirect customs duty or an external tax. Now, revenues from taxes would pay the salaries of the royal governors and judges who were in America. It established a commission and a vice admiralty court for enforcement. So royal judges would be allowed to grant writs of assistance in private homes, shops, or warehouses. The colonial reaction was obviously negative. The colonies were angrily, angrily, the colonies were angry as they interpreted the act as an inappropriate tax to raise revenue and to pay royal salaries, which they thought was bull. Uh, colonists are especially going to hate the tax on tea because if you think about your options of what you could drink back then, you had hard liquor, you had beer, and then you had water. Now, the water was in these towns and these cities was generally nasty and laden with bacteria and things like cholera. Tea would change the flavor of this, you know, dirt water. And you also had to boil it so you would actually kill the bacteria or cholera. Yuck. Anyway. <clears throat> Where was I? Oh, John Dickinson. He wrote letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania. He's going to challenge the distinction between internal and external taxes. He denies Britain's right to levy taxes for the purpose of revenue. 
And the pamphlet is going to promote the Massachusetts Circular Letter. This letter, written in February of 1768, so the Massachusetts Legislature, this has to do with this letter here, is going to be urged by Sam Adams and James Otis, remember, no taxation without representation, who are going to support Dickinson's ar uh, arguments and ask other colonies to pass petitions calling for Parliament to repeal those Townshend Acts. In response, the British are going to send troops to Boston, Boston and they're going to threaten to dissolve Massachusetts legislature if the letter was not retracted. Other colonies that voted for the circular would likewise be dissolved. Now, some colonies reenacted previous non-importation agreements, and Britain, British exports to America fell around 40% over the next few months. Several colonial legislatures were dissolved as they supported Massachusetts. So you had Maine, Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, and South Carolina. Enter the Boston Massacre. Now, there was a peaceful arrival of troops in Boston that's going to arouse the American resistance. The colonials are going to fear this standing army and believe that Britain is going to seek to suppress colonial liberties. So on March 5th, 1770, British soldiers... Having been provoked, that you know, that's what we think. We're not 100% sure. It's, you get two different stories from each side. It's like the, uh, it's like the little arguments that you do for, you know, the two different points of view on Fridays. There are two distinct points of view for the, the Boston Massacre. Now, what we do know is 11 civilians were killed or wounded. Crispus Atticus... And that's C-R-I-S-P-U-S, and the last name A-T-T-U-C-K-S. He was a mulatto, which means, you know, of mixed origin, mixed with black and white. Merchant seaman, he was the first to die in the revolution and was the alleged leader of the unruly mob. Now, the word uh, of massacre spread throughout the colonies, especially by the Sons of Liberty, because of the colonial propag uh, propaganda is going to exaggerate the event just, you know, just put it way out of proportion. Now, some say that the the mob w were throwing not just snowballs, but snowballs with rocks in them, and then a gun went off by accident, and, you know, someone got shot. And then the other side is <clears throat> that, you know, they were just, the mob was just shouting at them and whatever, and then the British shot first. So, like I said, there's two different sides to this story. Now, after all this happened, the Townshend Acts are going to be repealed. Lord North is going to bow to pressure, and he's going to get Parliament to repeal the Act in 1770. The non-importation agreements were actually hurting the British manufacturers, so they're like, we got to do something about it. And then there's going to be the three pence tax on tea is going to remain to demonstrate that the Parliament still has the right to tax. But regardless, people were still going to smuggle, and it... And it was just completely because of, like, the principle of the thing. Because the tax on tea, the tea was still cheaper than the smuggled tea. So they were paying more to smuggle tea in. Like I said, it was the, the principle of the thing. Because basically they were trying to unload this, this ship of tea on the colonists because it wasn't selling somewhere else. Um, under this repeal, half the troops in Boston are going to be removed. And until 1773, the relations, relations are going to improve after the Townshend Acts were repealed. 
This leads us to the Committees of Correspondence. So, some colonial discontent is going to continue as the British redouble their efforts to enhance, or sorry, not enhance, but enforce the navigation law. So, there they are again. Sam Adams is going to use propaganda to whip up, you know, this colonial resentment, get everybody into a frenzy, and the and uh, he's going to organize a local committee of correspondence in Massachusetts in November of 1772. Now, its primary function was to spread propaganda and information by interchanging letters in order to keep opposition to British policy alive. They wanted to keep this beginnings of the rebellion going. <clears throat> in particular, the letters from British government, including those of Governor Hutchinson, show that Britain was acting on Hutchinson's advice and wishes. So, this intercolonial committee of correspondence is going to emerge. It's also going to evolve directly into the first American Congresses in 1774 and 1775. The Tea Act crisis, and then we get into the First Continental Congress. So the Tea Act of 1773, the British government granted the British East India Company a monopoly of the American tea trade. So the British East India Company was on the verge of bankruptcy, which would have cost the British government huge revenues. So the price of tea would be even lower than the existing prices, even with that tax. So this is like I was talking about just a second ago. Americans are going to really, they're going to be upset about this. They saw the Tea Act as an attempt to trick the colonies into accepting the tax through cheaper tea. This leads to the Boston Tea Party, December 16th of 1773. You have the Sons of Liberty. They're going to dress up as Native Americans, board three ships in the harbor. They're going to smash over 300 chests, and they're going to dump the tea into the harbor. Uh, I think they just found not too long ago one of those chests that was still, like, down in that water. <clears throat> in response, so to punish... Uh, Boston for what they did, the Boston Tea Party, you're going to get the Intolerable Acts, which is, that's what we're going to call them, and Britain calls them the Coercive Acts, and this is going to be 1774. So, the Boston Port Act, the harbor is going to remain closed until damages are paid and law and order was restored, because remember, that's where they dumped all the tea. The Massachusetts Charter was revoked. This is part of the, all part of this intolerable acts. The king had power to appoint the governor's council, not the assembly, and it's going to forbid town meetings except for election of town officials. Officials are going to enforce the act. Um, sorry. Officials who would enforce the act and, you know, sometimes kill colonists could now be tried in England instead of the colonies thereby avoiding any colonial justice. So, you know, that was good for them. And then the quartering act, you know, it pops back in. And this is going to provide for the quartering of troops once again in Boston. Now, this leads us to the First Continental Congress in 1774. In response to these intolerable acts, the committees of the correspondents urged the colonies to act quickly. Bostonians are going to agree to end all trade with Great Britain and invite other colonies to join in with this resistance. The First Continental Congress will deliberate in the fall of 1774 and will end up with 12 of the 13 colonies present at this First Continental Congress. Georgia decided not to go. Some of the delegates are going to be men like Sam Adams, John Adams, his cousin and lawyer, uh, George Washington, and Patrick Henry. Now, their first step is they endorse several resolutions known as the Suffolk Resolves from Massachusetts. And that Suffolk is S-U-F-F-O-L-K. Now, one of the things they did was to denounce the Intolerable Acts. They're also going to urge colonies to organize a militia for defensive purposes. 
hence our Second Amendment. And they're also going to call on colonies to suspend all trade with the rest of the British Empire because they're trying to hurt them economically. This is also, they're also going to urge citizens not to pay taxes because, again, economics. Now, the main purpose for this was to petition for redress of grievances, a.k.a. the Declaration and Resolves. Now, we're not to the Declaration of Independence yet. Now, this is going to give the colonists the legal right to assemble in order to seek redress. The document contained the same structure as the Declaration of Independence. There's a preamble, there's the list of agreements, and then there's a mutual pledge. Now, the most significant action of Congress was the association. And this called for a complete boycott of British goods. So, non-importation, non-exportation, and non-consumption. So, a complete boycott. Even with all that, though, Congress is going to restate allegiance to the king because they had no real desire to be independent. They just wanted their grievances redressed. So, the king and parliament did not respond to the declarations and resolved and... Because basically this would recognize Congress's right as a legislative body. So they basically ignored it. So Lexington and Concord. This is the, the shot heard round the world. Now, Parliament ordered General Gage, and now he was the new governor of Massachusetts, to arrest the leaders of the rebellion and to prepare for military action. Gage is going to seek to prevent bloodshed by disarming the local militia. April 1775, 700 troops, redcoats, are going to, uh, they're going to be sent secretly to nearby Lexington and Concord to try and seize gunpowder and try to arrest the leaders of the Sons of Liberty, Sam Adams and John Hancock. They're going to be warned by Paul Revere, William Dawes, and a few others, these, these Minutemen. Now, the Battle of Lexington and Concord began when the Minutemen refused to disperse on Lexington Green and shots were fired. So, eight Americans were killed, ten were wounded, and who actually fired the first shot, we still don't know. Uh, the Redcoats continued on to Concord because, you know, they, had, they were able to push the, the Minutemen back, and Concord was only about six miles away. Now, at Concord, the British were forced to retreat by American reinforcements. The militia is going to end up picking off British soldiers as they're going to retreat to Boston. So casualties by the end of the day, 273 British, 95 American. And the Minutemen the are then going to encamp outside the city and then lay siege to Boston. One of the reasons they were able to push them back is because of the guerrilla tactics that they used. Your British are actually going to line up because they believe this was like the man's way to fight, the civilized way to fight, while your Minutemen will hide behind, you know, buildings and trees and, and rocks. Because, yeah, standing out there to be shot sounds wonderful. All right, so the British strengths and weaknesses during the American Revolution. So let's start off with the British, British strengths. Now, the population size is going to obviously favor Britain, 7.5 million to 2.5 million from the colonies. They have a superior monetary advantage and, at the time, the best navy in the world. There's 20,000 slaves in Carolinas and Georgia who are eventually going to join the British forces, and only 5,000 decide to join the rebels. Basically, Britain promised the slaves freedom if they fought for their side. And many are going to flee with the British after the war and leave the country because I would too. 
Many of the Native Americans also sided with Britain and attacked American colonists along the frontier. The British represented the last hope for keeping any of the land-hungry colonists out of the West. Britain also possessed a larger army, so they had a 50,000-man professional army. King George III hired an additional 30,000 German Hessians as mercenaries. Britain also enlisted around 50,000 colonial loyalists. Now, the weakness. Now, this an enormous distance that are going to separate England from the colonies, so communication was inefficient for any kind of immediate action. America was also too large a region for Britain's army to effectively occupy. The colonial population was very dispersed, so think more rural than urban. <clears throat> because Britain's conquest of any of these large colonial cities had little to no strategic value. They didn't know what to do when it came to these large, you know, open areas. The British generals in America were often poor leaders. Many of the British soldiers did not want to kill Americans whom they saw as their very own countrymen, and the provisions for the army were very poor. Americans only had to tie in order to win. The British had to win outright. France also supported the colonies, first with funds and then after 1778 with full military support. The British government overall proved ineffective. King George III and Lord North proved inadequate to the task, and the Whig factions in Parliament basically cheered on American victories at the, on at the outset. So the American strength and strengths and weaknesses. Their strengths. They had an outstanding military and diplomatic leadership. They had George Washington, they had Benjamin Franklin, even though George Washington actually lost his first battle, like before he became general. They had economic aid from France at the outset, and then later they had military aid, which is going to be a very decisive you know, um, action on the French. They have defensive military tactics. This is going to work to their advantage because they have that home advantage. They're agriculturally self-sustaining, and the colonies were competent marksmen, so they were actually better than the Redcoats because a lot of these were hunters and trappers. There was the also, the also the moral advantage from the colonists because they believed that they had just cause to rebel. Now the weaknesses. They were badly organized for the war and they lacked any kind of unity from the beginning. The Continental Congress was also weak and effective, just like Lord North and King George III. They fought almost the entire war without a constitution, so we had no form of government. Well, we did, but it was a sucky one which we talked about last year, my 11th graders, and the year before that, my seniors. Uh, there's going to be jealousy among the colonies. This is going to result in inefficiencies in the war effort, and each colony regarded itself as sovereign and sometimes resisted Congress's attempts to exercise its weak power. There's also going to be quarrels over the appointment of military leaders that's going to occur regularly. Then there's the economic difficulties. So there was little metal money that existed. Paper money was it ended up being printed repeatedly to the point that it became almost worthless. Soldiers are going to desert due to economic difficulties of their families. Debtors pay their debts with seriously depreciated money, so that dollar is now worth like 10 cents, that kind of thing. Uh, there's military challenges. The military supplies were inadequate, especially firearms and gunpowder, and the militiamen were highly unreliable. Are they going to show up? Maybe, maybe not. 
Morale in the Revolutionary Army was undermined by greedy American profiteers. They sold goods to the British for payment in gold. The speculators forced prices sky high. And then Boston merchants made profits of 50 to 200 percent. And yes, you had that right. 200. While soldiers were dying. Literally dying. Starving. And then only a, a select minority of Americans really committed themselves to the cause. So like one out of three. So yeah. Alright, so that ends this chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Your terms to know are already up. And I will be dropping your essay question or it will be posted on the board. Or your essay questions or will be posted on the board. Um, we may actually do one of these this time. So be prepared on Friday.